You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with One Step Off the Grid and the EV focused The Driven. And my normal co-host, David Leach from ITK Services, will be with us in the second half of this podcast. But first of all, I'd just like to interview our guest for this week, Rob Murray Lynch from the Energy Efficiency Council. Rob, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Giles. You guys have released a rather detailed and uh, important report about the challenges of uh, going wind and solar, 100% renewable grid, and the opportunities that those old things such as energy efficiency, demand management, load shifting, and electrification could offer for a renewable grid. I mean, I remember going to some of the I don't know whether they were the first, but I remember a decade ago going to Energy Efficiency Council conferences and people talking about how obvious energy efficiency was, like picking up $20 notes from the floor, but nobody wanted to do it because everyone just seemed to want to produce more energy and pay whatever price. (laughs) Have things changed? Yeah, look, they they have, and I think it's also different in different countries So and different sectors. So if we look at some parts of the economy, their energy efficiency in the last decade has just dramatically improved. So um, from your first time you came to our conferences, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was probably 2010, Giles. It, um, it could have been. Was that was that over in Manly, I think it was? And the... Yeah, 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 that was the time. So, so back, back in 2010, and... Like in offices, when I was, you know, first in the job, we we managed to work with both sides of Parliament and got through something that a lot of people have been pushing, which was mandatory disclosure for the energy efficiency of offices, which just sounds fancy, but it means when you sold or leased an office, you had to say how efficient it was. Kind of a minor tinkering sort of reform, it seemed at the time, but along with everything else, what we've seen is energy use per square meter in offices, more than half in the last decade. So in that sector, it's really shown us what we can do when we put our minds to it and the sort of combination of the technology and the policies and the the sector really wanting it come all together and it can move really quickly. In other sectors, I think your your point is is very well made. You know, uh, there hasn't been as much uh, effort on there as there could be, certainly not compared to internationally. But even in areas like residential, I mean, the data is pretty fantastic about how much the growth in energy demand has slowed. So not quite as fantastic as the office sector. Um, but no, really, we are starting to see the tide turn there. But there is a lot more that we could be doing. And it seems from your new report that there's a lot more that we must be doing, because I think one of the principles or the main conclusions of your report is that it's not just energy efficiency, it's the demand management and the load shifting. And this is important mm-hmm. now, because as we're going into parts of the grid now, which are some of them well above 50% wind and solar, others heading mm-hmm. that way by the end of the decade, these sorts of things are much cheaper options than than storage, for instance. So look, Maybe we should just go back and just sort of describe what this report is and why you've made it and then some of the headline things. Yeah, so so we made it because a lot of people kept on saying to me, well, is efficiency pointless because we've got lots of cheap renewables, which we do. 
you know, the, the cost of renewables has just dropped dramatically, which is fantastic. Um, and we can do electrification. So is there a role still for, for energy efficiency? And the answer is the role changes quite dramatically. So we started writing the report just to sort of look at, well, how should we change how we're doing energy efficiency? And as we were writing the report, we actually realized there's some pretty deep, big messages in here that needed to sort of um, maybe get a wider airing, um, which is about the actual role of it as we go to 100% renewables. Right, and um, and, and in that with 100% renewables, it's not just energy efficiency, is it? It's um, it's it's all the other things. Why don't you sort of talk about those other sort of concepts? Because just reading through the report mm. this afternoon, you talk about um, demand management, which I guess is a sort of well, a much heard of concept. I don't know whether it's well understood. Yeah. Um, there's load shifting. There's um, surplus power but also spilling and why that's a good thing and maybe not such a good thing i'm not too sure why don't you go through some of the main principles that that we really need to get our mind around as part of what you're describing as this sort of smart energy approach um to solve some of the challenges of you know wind and solar grids fantastic yeah so starting with some of the sort of energy management concepts which are really familiar for people on my side of the, the work um that aren't as well understood is that the first thing is energy efficiency, very basic concept, differs from energy conservation. So energy conservation is saying, look, I'm not going to light my office as much to save energy, whereas energy efficiency will be like, I'll put in a more efficient light bulb, delivering exactly the same service, but with less energy. So that's kind of the simple one that everyone knows. That, that, that's but, important, isn't it? Because we're not going to go back and live in caves. We're still going to do the same things. We're just going to be smarter about it. Yeah, totally. In fact, you know, one of the things I've, I find interesting is, is when I kind of have been accused of that over the years by, uh, you know, I'm sure some of the commentators you might have uh, locked horns with over the years as well, Charles. Um, you know, you want us to live in a hair show. I, mean, I want people to live in better homes that are more comfortable. Um, and that's totally possible and doable because our homes are so woefully inadequate from a thermal perspective. And, and it's, it's quite noticeable if you ever talk to people from sort of Europe or the US and they come to Australia and they're like, what the hell? Why am I so cold in my in my own home? <laughs> shut the window. It is shut. Shut the oh, window. Sorry. Well, well, yeah. Or, 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 I mean, my big bugbear is like people leaving doors open in restaurants in winter. I'm like, what is what? Like that is a hate crime in Europe. What are you doing? Like that is that is genuinely an offensive thing to me. Um. So yeah. So we, we it's very much about more comfort, but you can do that quite easily with some very basic tweaks that are just standard in other countries. Um. But the other thing about energy efficiency, I think that's not super well understood, like people, if you describe it, kind of go, oh, yeah, of course. But it is, it's not sort of intuitively understood by a lot of people in the energy space, which is energy efficiency only occurs at the time you are using energy anyway, which is an obvious point. But it means things like uh, if you're making a fridge more efficient, then it's sort of 24-7, 365 days of the year reduction in demand. Uh, if you make a process that happens in the middle of the day in summer more efficient it's it's going to be less relevant or less valuable if you've got a system with lots of pv producing energy at that time uh, if you're doing something like improving the envelope of your home which is you know it's walls it's draft proofing it's insulation um, or the efficiency of its heater that has a massive impact because that's happening at exactly the time let's say in winter and in the evenings when there's a lot less energy being generated by wind so when we save energy is going to really matter in the future. Some types of energy efficiency will have very little value and some will be uh, extremely valuable. 
Let's get on to sort of demand management and load shifting. I'm not too mm. sure whether they're the same thing or sort of slight variations of the former. I mean, I do remember demand management, the uh, the former CEO of Snowy Hydro, mm. Paul Broad, describing um, demand management as enforced blackouts, which wasn't a very helpful um, observation. But um, can you sort of maybe sort of say why it's important and, and what the difference between demand management and load shifting is? Look, my general principle, if Paul Broad opposes something, it's probably a good idea. But um, <laughs> that's just me personally um, and my belligerence. Um, it's a really good question. So there's a bunch of different terms about moving when we use energy. And the annoying thing at the moment is actually a lot of people use different terms to mean different things, uh, same terms to mean different things. It's not really in a, a kind of a standard vocabulary. And one thing I would love, actually, if we could start doing is to come together and all kind of work out which terms we prefer for different things. Uh, generally, load shifting means just shifting when you're using energy. And that could either be sort of instantaneous, like something it's a, it's a really hot day and you, you make a change to your uh, manufacturing plant when you're using energy. That's generally considered, if it's instantaneous, demand response. So anything that's really quick is generally demand response, but that's still a kind of load shifting. Um, or I'd call it permanent load shifting, which, for example, is putting your hot water system on a uh, on a timer. So it's always running when your solar is generating, which is kind of a no brainer if you have solar and you've got an electric water heater is to is to run it during the middle of the day to heat up your water rather than in the middle of the night when it's going to be using expensive cold fired generation. So mm -hmm. I, I generally use load shifting as a broad term, but I would kind of distinguish permanent load shifting as that more sort of like you're doing it every every single day thing versus demand response is like an immediate response to a change in the system. So, um, for example, you know, a, a transmission wire goes down and you want to kind of actually respond really, really quickly or there's something that's happened that's a bit unexpected. Okay, so sort of load shifting is more of like a change of behaviour on a permanent way, and demand response is something about helping manage the grid and any sort of issues it might have and, and things like that. Is, that. is that a fair wrap? Yeah, so demand response is sort of real-time. Yeah. Load shifting is almost like a permanent thing you do on a yeah. daily basis. I mean, and the load shifting, I mean, you, you use the example of um, hot water heaters, which, as you say, is a no-brainer, although sort of apparently hard to do in, in, in some parts yeah. of the grid for, 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 for reasons which probably still escape me. But it's fascinating to see some of these um, miners coming up. We had one story uh, this week but a tin mine to be built in New South Wales, thinking of just putting all its crushing activities, making them more efficient, so actually using about one third of the energy that they was originally planned to do, and doing it only during the day because they can install a lot of solar there. So basically making their almost their entire operation sort of totally renewable. The same principle has been taken by Oz Minerals, now owned by BHP, which is proposing to build a $1 billion nickel mine out in the out, right out in the outback on the border of Western Australia, Northern Territory and South Australia. Diesel and gas, normally their only options, way too expensive. So they're looking to go almost fully renewable and doing that pretty much through this sort of load shifting, just trying to do as much as they can during the day or in the evening, depending on, because uh, I think they're going to have wind there as well. So those are specific examples where people have got a direct competitor technology which is horrendously expensive so how adaptable mm. is that throughout the rest of the economy great question it, it's really quite end use specific so i tend to always approach stuff from you know what is the consumer trying to do whether it's a factory or the household and what do they actually want do they want their home to be warm um do they want to be producing you know crushing minerals some of those things can be easily adjusted by time and some things can't be so 
in your house, for example, your lights really don't have any flexibility at all. If you want the light on in your room, you're going to switch on the light at that time. Uh, other things like hot water, super flexible, right? You can move that around and, and, you know, I was talking at a conference recently and somebody was like, oh, why would we change it just to meet these damn renewables? And it's like, well, we've been heating water at night for over 60 years just to suit the coal-fired generation. Right? So this is, this is not anything new. We're just shifting it to the new type of generation. So that's, that's really straightforward. And then there's things like, you know, preheating your home, which are a bit, uh, you've got some flexibility around them. And it's exactly the same in the industrial space. Some process can be very easily and cost-effectively moved to the daytime or when solar is generating. Others, it's gonna be harder if you've got, for example, uh, an aluminum smelter, they've got a lot less flexibility about when they're running than um, crushing ores. Right? So, uh, but in, in some ways, I think, we're, in a way we're going back to the future because as I said, you know, we've done a lot of this in the past. Like a lot of factories would run operations for certain procedures at night because that's when there was a lot of cheap coal-fired generation sloshing around the system and demand was low. Um, moving to the days, it's fantastic for them because it's actually going to line up much better with when their staff are available. So uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a no-brainer where it's possible, but it's really going to depend on exactly what the piece of equipment is about how flexible it is and whether it can be moved or not. Hmm. Tell us about some of the other sort of conclusions from this report. Um, and maybe you want to sort of reemphasize some of the things that you said about energy efficiency and, and, and load shifting. So I guess we've kind of only sort of talked them out about hmm. them in sort of general principles. Um, is there anything specific that you wanted to add um, that your report has come up with that we kind of didn't know before? In a way, the report I don't think it's a radically new report. What it's trying to do is put all the information in one place to make it something quite clear and easily accessible for people who don't think about the demand side too much, but but want to. Um, so it's kind of explaining how demand and supply work, how they're going to flow through the system. There's a few things that were quite interesting for me going through the report so and getting all the data together to say it. So the first was, you know, having to really learn about the world you swim in every day, Giles, with your knowledge in terms of storage and uh, renewables costs and you know just how dramatic the cost is between using uh you know like getting your your, your bread fresh from the oven and how tasty it is uh using that tasty energy straight from solar as opposed to storing it and um, the cost difference that that makes whether you're a household or a business is just extraordinary at the moment now um it's very likely that storage will come down in cost it may not be in the next couple of years there's a lot of complexity around that but in the long term, I think the direction for storage coming down in cost is pretty clear. But based on current prices in your own home, it would be sort of about eight times as expensive or more to use it at night than it would be during the day. Um, and if you're using industrial, you know, like large scale storage, it's not quite as big a variation, but it's still very substantial. So really, really big differences between using that sort of, you know, fresh from the oven um solar versus the stuff that's been stored and the cost difference to that is is quite extraordinary so that was what i guess a key lesson and one of the ones that was really really remarkable is just how out of sync when homes use energy from when their solar is producing and just doing a few tweaks like moving your hot water into the middle of the day but also doing like efficiency around your house what kind of really really struck out is doing the thermal efficiency so particularly in the southern states making sure that you're not being a sort of your home is well designed to keep you warm without too much energy being put into it 
what it means is you've got a much flatter demand profile over the year, which in turn means you don't need to overbuild your solar as much. You don't need to overbuild your storage as much. So it's a lot cheaper. And we can talk about what that means for an off-grid home uh, in a minute. Um, but it means also you're getting a much better utilization rate of your solar because instead of building way more than you need and then having to spill a lot of it, you're actually having your load profile much, much closer to the profile of your solar output. And that's much cheaper for individual households, but for the whole grid. Mm. It seems that these sort of definitions, I was just sort of thinking, um, my mind was just sort of wandering to a story I wrote this afternoon about the new energy minister in New South Wales. He mentioned sort of in certain her first press release about the need to have storage because when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow, I actually thought we'd actually gone beyond this sort of rhetoric, but it just sort of reminds me of just sort of the need yeah. to think about there's actually smarter solutions than simply just sort of building more stuff or keeping coal plants going. And, you know, there's actually, you know, there's, there's smarter ways of doing things. Um, I'm just wondering, Robbie, if, if it's worth talking about some of the other things that you've approached in in this, um, you, you, you've addressed in this report, and I'm thinking of electrification and sort of a hydrogen thing, maybe just sort of uh, talk about electrification first and, and the opportunities here. And it's, it's actually sort of fascinating to see the amount of work that's actually happening in this area. I'm thinking of Saul Griffith and Rewiring Australia, the Rewiring America program. Um, because I just think, you know, and even even the steel announcement from uh, Sanjeev Gupta this week about um, decarbonising steel at Wayala, um, just using more electric processes powered by renewables to replace mm. the old sort of clunky way of making steel through coal. Yeah, look, uh, so what we tried to do with this report, so you know, the EC's in perspective on this stuff is always interesting because we tried to be stick to our knitting, right, and and just sort of talk about how energy is used. But it became very clear as we we're writing this that we need to be really explicit about whether it's to our members or the broader world, what is the world we think is going to happen in terms of how we're going to be saving energy? So what sort of world are we saving energy in? And two things became very clear. So one is, is just how quickly we are moving to renewables. That's become very clear over quite a long period of time. The second thing is, while we love to sort of remain neutral and technology neutral as much as possible, we also need to give honest, frank advice to our members, to policymakers, to the market. And I think it's extraordinary how quickly the data shifted, particularly because there's some really good work done in Victoria where they basically sat down and tried to think through these things and watching stakeholders change their minds as they sort of actually came to grips with a lot of the data around this. Hydrogen is going to have real value, green hydrogen, uh, primarily as a replacement for grey hydrogen, which is made from turning fossil fuels into hydrogen with the release of a lot of CO2, which is used for a lot of chemical processes. So that's its primary value. And it'll do a lot of other things quite valuable as well, um, particularly industrial heating. Biofuels, what we found is, look, again, really, really useful applications, particularly for things like aviation. Uh, and if you've got waste on site, creating biofuels and that if you're a piggery and you're turning that waste into into biomethane fantastic really useful if you don't it's quite expensive and so it's really going to be reserved for really high value end uses as i said like aviation so what became really clear to us is that depending on the end use it's actually very clear which are the most viable options and we're sort of talking in these very general terms but when you kind of looked at it for for, for buildings and for light vehicles, so cars and light trucks, that kind of stuff, there really isn't a competition to electrification. 
at the moment. Um, fuel cell vehicles, look, I know it's bad to shut the door in technologies and who knows what we might see in a decade's time. But at the moment, 0.5%, I think it was, I'll, I'll double check the data as we're going, um, of vehicles sold in the world that are, because fuel cell vehicles are EVs, right? They just use hydrogen as the energy storage instead of batteries. Only 0.5 of those, of EVs are fuel cell vehicles. They're very, very small market share. And it's very clear that they are not going to be winning for cars or for trucks, like trucks, maybe for bigger ones, they will. So in those fields of people's homes, commercial buildings, um, particularly cars, there is really not a competition at the moment for electrification. Things may change in a decade, but but for now, it's it's pretty clear. Yeah, I'm just interested in one of the homes because we do hear about this. I don't know whether it's something that's actually pushed by the gas networks or whatever like that. So mm. can we just sort of just maybe just sort of very briefly just encapsulate why hydrogen wouldn't make sense in the homes? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. So at the moment, I can go out and I can buy an air conditioner to warm my house and I can buy an induction stove or I can buy a resistive stove, although I hate those things. Um I can buy a heat pump hot water or a resistive hot water. Um, they all function well. They've been functioning well for you know long periods of time. They're mature technologies, and they are much better technologies, frankly, uh, than their gas-fired equivalents. Uh, if I want to use hydrogen for those, I would be waiting because there are currently not commercial options for any of those. Um, and if I want to put gas into the network, I have very high penetrations of uh, proportions of the, of the network as gas, uh, as hydrogen. I will have to replace very substantial sections of the gas network to do that or make modifications like lining it with plastic because high proportions of hydrogen in the network cause a whole range of issues. So it is not cheap. It is not a case of repurposing the network. You will have to rebuild the gas network to do that. For a technology that isn't really out there at the moment, for um, a fuel that is not at the price. Now, it may change. So we talked to experts on hydrogen, and they actually have very high expectations about where it could go. And I think, as I said, hydrogen is going to be incredibly valuable fuel. But realistically, getting into the gas network, getting into the homes, it is not today a technology option. And it may start to become technology option after 2030. But uh, we will be, um, uh, we just don't see realistically hydrogenization of homes happening realistically in the next decade and there's a potential that it might happen after that but a lot of things have to happen and one of the things that really i think is the nail in the coffin for me is if you look at the fact that you turn green electricity into hydrogen or you turn it into energy using a heat pump for example um, you would need five times as much electricity to create the hydrogen to be used in a household so it's very hard to see a world where hydrogen becomes cheaper than electrification for particularly heating homes uh, or for using it for transport. But I do think that hydrogen is going to have a lot of very valuable uses in industry and a whole range of areas, and it's going to be a very valuable um, feedstock for those purposes. Okay. Um, some of the other things um, I'd like to sort of tackle while we've um, got time, um, the sort of concept of spilling renewable electricity, mm. um, you know, um, why we shouldn't, I mean, I guess this means that what we need to do to sort of meet the spills and the, or, or the peaks and the troughs or the droughts and things like that is have a surplus of wind and solar. I'm not even too sure if that's actually correct or whatever, but you're sort of saying we should expect to do some spilling of wind and solar but this is not necessarily a bad thing although we can minimize it perhaps in your own words you might want to explain a bit of than i've just tried to do 
Yeah. So, so yeah, spilling is another word for, you know, you've got your solar on your roof. Uh, it's easy to kind of explain it with an off-grid home. You've got your solar system on your roof. You've got a battery. Um, it's actually way more economic. So to minim, minim, like storage is very expensive. Well, one way to reduce uh, storage costs is actually to build more renewables in terms of uh, kilowatt hours production per year than you use in kilowatt hours production over the eight year. And rather than storing all the excess in your battery and then using it at other times, you just produce more uh, renewables for a lot of the year. And that's pretty standard. Like if you want to build an off-grid home, uh, your advisor definitely should advise you to overbuild your your solar array because it's actually not very expensive to increase the capacity of the solar system. And that allows you to have a much smaller battery. So that's a basic thing. And in any sort of system that is primarily powered by wind and solar, you can have periods of overproduction and periods of underproduction. And if you make them a little bit better, you have less problems in those periods of low production and you produce a little bit more in the periods of overproduction. And that's fine. Like that's actually a much more efficient use of resources because solar and wind are a lot cheaper than storage, whether you're looking at that cheaper in terms of an economic sense or in terms of a material sense. So from both an economic and an environmental perspective, it is much better to um to overbuild a little bit and to spill a little bit and we should get comfortable with that but getting comfortable with it doesn't mean we should just accept accept that we're just wasting renewable energy without reason um there will going to be opportunities to use it better and there'll be opportunities to uh, reduce the level of spillage which is a better outcome for everyone and you're quite sure that sort of spilling solar does not actually deplete the resources of the sun, because I've actually heard that suggested. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. <laughs> um, but you know, this when we sort of were, were looking through this, and I was like, oh, is this a radical concept that will get a lot of people to to kill me? And we were sort of talking to people in the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in the US and a bunch of solar advocates around the world, and they were like, no, this is this is just a basic concept that some level of spillage is kind of inevitable and and definitely the way to go because it is. Renewables are so cheap now that that's actually a highly efficient outcome. Well, that's right. Yes, because we often sort of have stories. In fact, we've probably written a few ourselves going, oh, tut, 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 you know, 4% or 5% of wind and solar produced in South Australia was spilled or wasted or whatever. Um, it probably only really matters to the developers of those wind and solar farms who didn't take that into account. Yeah, and I also think it, it depends, you know, like a lot of this report, to be honest, Giles, is is when you're in a world that we were in five years ago, where every single extra unit of solar going into the system is displacing a unit of coal-fired generation. Um, yeah, minimizing spillage is absolutely essential because you are displacing a piece of coal if you can, if you can avoid that. The world we're going to go to, we really have to shift our thinking because we're going to a world where there's going to be so much solar in the middle of the day that extra solar going in isn't displacing any coal or gas. Um, it's just, com it's competing with other units of solar. And that is a fantastic problem to have. I am excited that that is the world we are going to. Um, but it does change the way we are going to think about a few things because it's no longer like um, spilling means more emissions. It's actually just, as I said, solar competing with solar. And that's a very different world. It's fantastic. It's sort of fascinating to hear you talk about this sort of shifting in thinking because that has to happen at so many different levels, just from the consumers, from the producers, but particularly the regulators, the rule makers, the market operators, and the and the policy makers. Um, is this starting to happen? Yeah, I think it is. And one of the things that I do think is a, is a really big problem, Giles, is that there's this real gulf 
within the sort of, you know, you talk to the, the deep policymakers and a lot of them get all of this stuff, you know, they're gung-ho for renewables, they know there's complexities, but they think we can get there. And it's just about getting the balance of how much we invest in renewables, getting the diversity of renewables, right, which I saw David did a great article on last week, which I strongly agree with about how do we get the right balance between the amount of wind and the amount of solar, because that is really important for the cost effectiveness of the system. Um, how we get the right amount of storage, how we get the right amount of investment in the grid and, and how we manage demand. It's, it's a complex thing, but we can do it. And if we do that well, we will get to the holy grail of a clean, affordable, reliable energy system much, much faster. There are people in the regulatory space who I don't think get that. Um, and then I think there's wide worlds within the sort of, uh, you know, within the clean energy advocates as well from the people who get it and people who don't. A lot of people from my side don't really understand supply. Um, some people in the supply world don't necessarily understand demand and how it fits together. And I think we're now at this stage where we're not about just doing the simple job of replacing the easy coal to displace with solar and wind. We're now getting to the point of how we get to that final chunk. And that final chunk will require coordination and require all of us, I guess, to, to learn a little bit more from each other. Uh, I certainly have been reading your uh, your your uh, articles even more rapaciously than I normally do to try and drink in as much knowledge about um the world of storage and EVs and uh, renewables, because I need to learn a hell of a lot about how that side works. So how do we, what, what happens now then? You just will say, you know, we've got this awareness now that this is the way that we need to happen. How do we make sure it does happen? Um, does your report address those things in a particular time? Do we sort of sit all the regulators down in an office and take them through a course in energy efficiency and demand management? Um, <laughs> um, do we, do, do, do we take the new New South Wales Energy Minister and sort of say, well, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, it's not going to be the end of the society as we know it? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's a really good question. And I think, I mean, that's one of the things I do think, Charles, is that the world is changing to the extent that, you know, in the old world, uh, I mean, I'm not going to, uh, because of my position, I can't name drop any terrible cosplaying politicians, right? But, you know, those ones who uh, might wield as a, as a cudgel the expression when the wind don't uh, blow and the sun don't shine, as if it was a reason for us not to do renewables. And what we're moving to, I think, is I'm hoping we are getting past the wars. There's always going to be absolute, you know, dill pickles out there, kind of. I don't know if that's an insult. Um, um, no, it's, something, it's, it's something I'm quite fond of putting on a sandwich, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I quite, you know, it's actually one of my favorite things. So I'm not going to use that as an insult. But I play there's, lunch. There's, there's, some, there's some Muppets out there, right, um, who will still wield that as an insult. Whereas for me, that's just an issue you need to manage. And the question is, how do you manage it as cheaply as possible and that's kind of what the report is saying is that there are times when we have a ton of super cheap renewables it's fantastic there are times when there's less availability how do we manage that cost now you can do storage it's great it's quite expensive we will need a ton of storage but we need to minimize that so diversifying our renewables so having wind and solar in the right mix um, overbuilding minimizing demand at really critical periods that determine the cost of the whole system doing that together um, is going to deliver that cheaper and i think that's one of the things i would i would advocate is we you know i feel like i've spent so long in the bunk you know fighting this war i'm only sort of just coming out the other side is that sort of if you remember that story of the sort of um the soldiers in world war ii who are sort of left on the islands and still thought they're at war sort of 20 years later <laughs> I, I don't want to find that that's me in 10 years time and so you know for me it's almost like the window 
the wind don't blow and the sun don't shine is just another thing you manage in the grid, right? It's not a problem. It's just something you optimize to minimize the cost. So I, that's that's my first thing is I think we need to we need to move to that world where we just talk as these of as, as issues that we're we're resolving as quickly and cheaply as possible. You mentioned about the years that you sort of spent fighting the good fight on these things. Um, <laughs> how much has it changed? I mean, I guess when you sort of started out 15 years ago, you mentioned 100% yeah. renewables to people and they'd be just going, you're absolutely crazy. And maybe even you weren't thinking yeah. about that, that at that time. I mean, it's sort of, uh, um, it's evolved quite rapidly when you think about it. Yeah, it was, it was, we were talking to somebody a couple of days ago about how, you know, the, um, when B, I think it was BZE was was the first one with their station energy plan in 2010, sort of said, you know, 100% renewables. And, you know, that was considered the most radical, um, you know, courageous, left, <laughs> alfalfa crunching, uh, you know, probably going to go and live in a wigwam, a kind of, you know, 1970s hippie nirvana. And now I think it's just accepted as the norm amongst people in the energy sector. Right. So, um, some of the things in that report were, you know, they, they were sort of saying, maybe, well, let's do it with solar thermal, um, which I think you can put under the sort of, haven't heard from that one for a while files. But yeah, this, it has changed so dramatically. And there are still people who are still thinking we should be fighting the climate wars. Um, and look, there's a lot of people out there in the public. One of the things that does worry me a lot is we've got very sanguine about network costs and you know, that was a key factor in freaking people out in 2010 when, mm. when network costs in New South Wales uh, went up by 130%. And that kind of, that blame got a portion to the carbon price and what was going on with, with clean energy at the time. So I don't think we can ever take it for granted that we can just not manage costs, not do things well, not communicate well, and, and we lose the permission to do this. But I think the permission is there. I think people broadly see that the future is, is clean energy and, uh, it's now our job just to make sure we do that as quickly and efficiently as possible. And do you remember, do you remain sort of ever hopeful? Because while this sort of prize of this 100% renewables and clean energy grid is ever closer, uh, much closer than perhaps we even imagined sort of 10, 15 years ago, um, so too is the climate crisis. I mean, we are sort of verging on mm. 1.5 degrees. The UN, um, uh, the IPCC report, sorry, uh, made that abundantly clear. We've we, The window is still open, uh, but uh, we've got to close it pretty quickly. Um, um, you, do you remain hopeful that we can and we will? That's a very good question. Um, and I think anybody in this space who hasn't thought about that question a lot uh, is, is, is deluding themselves. Look, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty clear and it's a, it's a no-brainer to say this, that some things have already happened, right? Some things are inevitable. Some of the things we love about the world have changed, right? Um, we are in a world of higher risk of bushfires, um, uh, and those changes are locked in, um, but we can still have a fantastic, biodiverse, beautiful world that is worth fighting for if we make those changes quickly. So I remain hopeful that we can have a wonderful world that is um, beautiful and fantastic for our children, but it will be a different world and some things have changed and, and not for the better, but that doesn't mean our world still can't be a wonderful place. Well, all the more reason for people to take notice of this report, particularly those with the power of actually doing something and changing something, but just about basically everyone just to get a better understanding and a better sort of recognition of the importance of all these concepts, you know, the energy efficiency, management, load shifting, electrification, um, spillage, overproduction. Um, it's all um, 
just a smarter use of energy just seems to be the way to go. Um, Rob Murray-Lish, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. It's been great to have you on. Charles, absolute delight to chat to you as always. And thank you. And we'll be back with part two of the podcast and David Leach, um, I hope, in a minute. And welcome back to part two of the Energy Insiders uh, podcast. And joining me at um, a substitute at halftime, I think, David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? Uh, well, thanks, Giles. Been, been busy, and uh, I think a lot of us are. Yeah, no, well, it's a terrific interview with Rob Murray Leach, but let's get on to some other aspects. Now, we have a climate policy, the safeguard mechanisms, um, the Greens have won at least some concessions from Labor in the um, in the final analysis. Um, the coalition didn't come to the party at all, despite the fact that this is based around their sort of original fig leaf of a climate policy. Um, do we really know? I mean, I've, look, I see prices going up in the um, ACU market and things like that, and I see people getting very excited about it, but um, do we actually really know what it's going to do? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that still have to be worked out. The uh, Greens claim, and the most important thing really, was about a hard target, which is this 140 million tonnes coming down to 100 million, of current emissions coming down to 100 million tonnes by 2030. But as I don't actually understand myself how this hard target is going to be enforced. Uh, and, and I'd like to know that. I think mm. that the policy must have some teeth, though, because we've seen a few complaints about it from, uh, you know, the gas industry and, and, and the likes. Well, that's right. Well, it seems that they've got more onerous task now to be sort of effectively sort of, you know, carbon neutral from pretty much the get go, which I guess it was what they do with offsets and things like that. But then there's questions about offsets um, it means the gas industry got to invest in these things. But um, I suppose that's good for the offset well, that, industry. That's the, that's the other complaint, Giles, is, is why is the only offset that you're allowed one of these ACUs, you know, or a land use thing? I mean, what's the relationship between gas production and land use? We should be having a marginal abatement curve. That's the original intention of the industry, where we want to do the easiest and cheapest to abate things first. Uh, and so I, I've long argued, I mean, this is a mini carbon scheme if it's a hard target, but we need to cast the net widely in terms of the abatement options rather than the government specifying what many people still consider to be a, a range of dodgy land use stuff. Yes, yeah, um, a fair way to go on that. And look, just on climate, um, while we're at it, it's interesting that uh, Admiral Chris Barry um, from the um, I can't quite remember off the top of my head the name of the group, but basically sort of former senior defence personnel who've come up, uh, created this climate advisory group who are calling on the federal government to release um, at least part of the details of this sort of detailed security report done by report done by the existing military on climate security. And they do it in the context of, gosh, we're spending $385 billion on submarines for some sort of overblown fear about um, being hit by China. Um, whereas they're sort of suggesting that the real climate concern, the real climate, con the real security concern, sorry, is actually around about climate change and its impacts. And it's um, it's fascinating to see that sort of pressure coming from these sort of people, well qualified, senior, serious people. Um, and I just will say that in the context that 
climate policies can't be half-baked. They've actually got to go for the 1.5 degrees now. We, we've run out of time, as the IPCC report makes absolutely clear. So it's going to be interesting to see what the reaction to that is. Uh, yeah, and overall, Giles, you know, the business side is one thing, but the political mandate uh, now is is more is to do more. In the end, I don't think that a tougher scheme will actually see uh, Labor being a loser electorally. But anyway, we, there will be plenty more time to talk about that. You wouldn't have thought so. Interesting, though, New South Wales government is in power. The Labor was swept to power in um, in, in New South Wales. Um, that's the departure of Matt Keane. Um, he's not even standing as leader of the opposition and the Liberal Party, possibly thinking about a federal leap. But um, what do you make of the new New South Wales Energy Minister? Um, the energy spokesman, Jihad Dib, has uh, been relegated to digital government or something rather than community services. And Penny Sharp is now the New South Wales Energy Minister, the first female energy minister in New South Wales. Um, she's leader of the House of the upper, of Labour in the Upper House, but she said some rather sort of interesting things about the coal plant at Araring, saying she'd never liked the idea that it was getting closed early in the first place and uh, supporting the idea that the government might buy back the plant. I don't see, quite see how that would work out. Um, but I guess it's kind of mixed signals in it. We're getting on with the infrastructure roadmap, but we're thinking about buying back a coal-fired power station. Um, it's not very comforting. Giles, I, I, I always like to let people get their feet under the desk uh, and, and preferably wait even for a full 12 months before, you know, you ask them too many questions. What, what you say before you get there is, is not necessarily what you say afterwards. What, what I, it does, uh, what I would say is that some of the biggest fans of the gas industry that are in public speaking uh, come out of the union movement. I, I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, and and um, it's, you know, they don't really care, it seems to me, about much except what they perceive as, as, as their jobs and their interest. And, and uh, I, Penny Sharp, like many ministers, doesn't have actually much background, as far as I can tell, uh, in the portfolio she's just assumed. So she's got a lot of learning to do uh, about what's what. So let's. I'll, I think it's an important, very obviously very important topic, very dear to our hearts, and I guess many on this podcast, but we'll just have to give her a little bit of time to uh, get her positions clear. Yes, and to move on from rhetoric, which she included in her first uh, press release, was um, all about when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So um, anyway, which just shows how little she knows at the moment, <laughs> right? I mean, that's okay. You know, the politicians should keep their mouth shut until they actually work out what they're talking about. That's what I would say. That's good advice, David. Um, speaking of Origin, who is the owner of the Araring coal plant, um, they uh, are now an agreed bid with Brookfield, um, at least for that utility part of the assets. Um, Brookfield has restated its intention to spend $20 billion and 14 gigawatts of new wind, solar and storage assets by 2030, which is a pretty um, ambitious timeline, and we welcome that. And it's kicked it off with a 400 megawatt wind project and storage in Queensland. So... Um, the wheels are turning already. Yes, I'm surprised to see Queensland, although Origin uh, does have some uh, business up there. It doesn't, it has the uh, Darling Downs gas generation uh, is, is its main, which I guess is a great firming asset if you want to think about it that way. Uh, and, and, and you know, uh, all I published a note myself a, a little while back showing how big I think Queensland ought to be 
in the, in the future of the national electricity market. So I can quite understand why there's a land grab in Queensland. And indeed, you know, there's a lot of places you can build solar plants, uh, Giles, provided you've got a grid connection. But wind resource is it's not a scarce asset, but it takes a long time to get a wind approval. Just ask uh, WinLab. Uh, and, and um, uh, you know, it's nice to be, have your foot on a few assets, isn't it? Well, it is. And look, I'm seeing you've mentioned WindLab. Um, that's the sort of the, the, the Burdekin Wind Project up in uh, North Queensland in a sort of environmentally sensitive area. They had signed a long-term power purchase agreement with Apple, part of that tech giant's plans to sort of, you know, become sort of, you know, 100% renewable by whatever it is that they want to do it. Um, but apparently Apple have pulled out. Um, in fact, we know they have pulled out. The question is, why have they pulled out? The suggestion is that it's because of the environmental concerns, particularly the um, impacts on koalas and um, various bird species. Um, WinLab is suggesting it's all about timing, which I do question because the contract was only actually announced in August last year and if you thought there was a delay in timing um, six months later sounds a bit soon for it to be pulled but um, there is a question now there is a growing scrutiny on wind farms and where they are built and what impact they will have on the surroundings. Uh, it takes a long time to get a wind farm approved I think I might have mentioned on this podcast someone was telling me uh, that it takes at least one year of bird studies and sometimes maybe a bit more uh, before you can get all your um, uh, I's dotted and T's crossed. At the same time, we need the wind and the rewards are there for building wind farms. Um, if I was just looking at some electricity prices today and, you know, wind gets a, a significantly bigger price than solar does, I don't suppose that'll surprise anyone. But on the numbers I look at, more than enough to justify the extra capital expenditure and the higher operating costs, more than enough. Um, and uh, the other thing I think, Giles, that's worth mentioning is that we've seen a lot of cost increases and continue to hear a lot about that, as well as skills shortages. And they're all uh, uh, serious worries, particularly with competing resources and the demands in the United States and, and, and Europe. But at the same time, China produced, uh, or sorry, globally, we saw about 268, 268 gigawatts of uh, solar produced last year. And according to some reports I've been reading, about 40, we don't even know where 40 gigawatts of that's gone. We know it was built, <laughs> but it seems to have disappeared off to people's warehouses, you know. Uh, and, and, and so I do think that this, the most important thing to understand about that, and I think there was something like 50 or 60 gigawatts of uh, rooftop solar. I mean, we pride ourselves in Australia on our rooftop, rightfully on our rooftop industry, but uh, China doesn't talk much, but they seem to be getting on with it. Uh, but uh, the point really is that uh, you would expect that with that rate of production and still growing, I think, that um, uh, you know, unit costs will come down as because we, we'll still be moving down the learning rate, which is the biggest long-term driver of costs. We'll still be moving down that learning rate at a reasonable pace. Sounds like an opportunity to create a Find My Solar Farm app um, um, for the iPhone or something like that, and or find a wind farm app. Um, there was an interesting report from Goldman Sachs talking about three terawatts of wind and solar capacity in China by 2030, which is sort of a rough calculation I did in my head suggests about a gigawatt a day or something like that. Um, 
uh, built between now and then. So um, those might not be the only wind and solar farms that they can't find. Uh, when well, comes... I think that's about 5,800 when I did some numbers on that, that mention of 5,800 terawatt hours or 5.8 petawatt hours of annual electricity at a 20% capacity factor. Uh, and believe me, you'd be running, you'd need a lot of batteries to run that stuff at night time. <laughs> anyway, um, David, is there anything else that we need to cover off um, this week? Um, I would point out uh, my last offering, I think, is going to be some of the latest data from the EV market. Really interesting to see battery electric vehicles overtake hybrids in Australia in new vehicle sales. And if we think about where we're heading with this, um, it's even the Federated Chamber of Automotive Industries is now admitting that um, if people can find an EV that they can afford, they're going to buy it rather than a fossil fuel car. Uh, we've seen Tesla um, grab still a, a, a majority share of the EVs. Uh, and, and I think they had another price round of price cutting just recently, didn't they, Giles? I think you can get into a Model 3 uh, for about 60 grand or something now, uh, yeah, which, you know, I think is a, a, quite a competitive price, even though, and then globally, they still seem to have a bit of surplus inventory from what I've been reading. Well, they do. And that's one of the reasons why they're actually sort of cutting prices to attract people to actually um, buy their cars, because they're producing so many now. They want to keep the demand rolling up. Um, they're facing some competition, particularly from BYD. But I guess the big impact is really on just some of the sort of the established Japanese car makers, and particularly and some of the other big European ones who haven't have been pretty slow to embrace EVs. Punted big time on hybrids, and now we're seeing EVs already over overtaking hybrids. So um... well, we said said many times, Japan hasn't got a clue. I mean, the J Japanese leaders are letting their country down all over the place, and, and yet there will always be markets like you know who will just take the frankly the lowest cost car, uh, like you know Asian markets uh, where, where where that's if people can get into a car at all, they're very very bloody thankful. So. So, you know, it's not the end of uh, Japan Inc., but it's the, um, they're, they're not uh, in, in the leadership category, you know, where we're going. No, yeah. Well, it's interesting to see that China, which is the world's biggest car market, is already at 25% share EVs and expected to be 35% by the end of this year, according to Bloomberg. So um, that's showing you where it's going and quite quickly. David, I think that might be a wrap for this um, edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. So thanks very much for joining me. I know you're going to rush off to an exciting um, um, event and I've got things to Kingfish do. Kingfish Ingram, so. Giles. Uh, for those who are interested in the in the hottest, uh, most genuine blues guitarist uh, uh, getting around the place these days. Well, why don't you just record it on your iPhone and we can play it in the podcast next time. Um, but um, that's probably breaching so much copyright. Anyway, thank you very much, David. Uh, thank you very much, Rob Murray Leach from the Energy Efficiency Council. Thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. Thanks to everyone listening out there. And uh, we'll be back um, after Easter with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.